0: From the headquarters of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, I'm Laura Farrar. This is Capitol & Scott. Earlier this month, a jury sentenced former Lone Oak County Sheriff's Deputy Michael Davis to a year in prison after fatally shooting 17-year-old Hunter Britton last June. Hunter Britton was white. Davis is the first Arkansas law enforcement officer to be convicted by a jury since at least 2005. I spoke with my colleague Teresa Moss about the case and what it means for police shootings in Arkansas and nationally. So Teresa, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. First, can you kind of set the stage? What happened with This shooting with Hunter Britton, I know there's sort of different versions of of the events that are slowly starting to come out and get more granular, but what is the basic narrative of what took place that night?
1: Well, Hunter Britton was working with friends on his car overnight. He was switching the transmission out. No one seems to really dispute those facts. He went out for a test drive about 3 a.m. During the test drive, the car was smoking, it was causing a lot of noise. Michael Davis, uh, the former Lona County Sheriff's Deputy, came upon the car, pulled him over, and Brendan apparently jumped out of the car very quickly, ran to the back of the truck, and went to grab a coolant can to place behind the wheel of the truck to keep it from rolling backwards into Michael Davis's car. While he was reaching for that can, Michael Davis shot and killed Hunter Britton within, with one shot. His statement is that he saw the can fly out Hunter Britton's hands after the shot was taken. Those are really the basics of what... I, I
0: don't think there's much disputing any of those facts from either side. Right, and so fairly quickly afterwards, Davis was charged with, was it negligent homicide? Uh, what, was, what was sort of the immediate aftermath of the shooting and, and what had happened um, with Davis, and then sort of also how the tr- uh, this whole case got so much traction in Arkansas and nationally within the few following few weeks. Uh, he was actually charged with manslaughter, felony
1: manslaughter, but I think that really quickly there was a lot of family and friends that came out. I think the, the Brennan family is fairly well-known and has a lot of friends and large, and they were spreading the word of the story pretty quickly throughout the community and then gathering in the days after the shooting that brought enough attention to to the shooting itself and i think it was a a 17 year old boy he there wasn't any reason to believe he was doing anything wrong he didn't have a weapon it was all these details and one that made the story go wider and wider but also the just this past year officer involved shootings of everyone's paid a little bit more attention to them. So that that helped as well. It was pretty quickly that national rights or civil rights activists were starting to become involved in the conversation within the first couple of weeks.
0: Did you see or notice, I mean, I know you've covered a lot of high profile cases and obviously, you know, everyone's aware there's been a lot of police shootings nationwide, but it seems that they're mostly with people who are black or the or the victims of police shootings. In this instance, Hunter Britton was white. Did you notice any difference in terms of the attention that this was getting or just the treatment that the family and you know, Britain was, was getting because of, of what happened and the fact that he was white and, and not black?
1: I think that what was interesting was that Al Sharpton and the NWACP came out in support of the shooting and came to the funeral, and they said that that was really one of the first instances where these movements were supporting a white shooting. And that was was rare. And they were making the statement that this is a human issue, that it is not a, a race issue, that we should all be on board together to pay attention to these types of shootings. But what's actually interesting is the NAACP had said early on that there's more white people shot by police in Arkansas than there are black. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of that data and I can't stand behind that data, but it was definitely something that was said over and over and over again. And when we get into distribution of, you know, can we say that stands up with with the percentage of, of white, is that disproportionate? I you know I can't say that for sure. Uh, nobody's really done that data well enough. Sure, I just say that. But the main conversation then was, this really does happen to white people. This just happened to be a kid, and it happened to be a kid in the situ in a situation that people were upset about, and there was enough people to be loud right about it.
0: So in the months leading up to the trial, uh, which was roughly at the beginning of March. I uh, was uh, Davis, the former, you know, Lone Oak County Sheriff's deputy. And Lone Oak County is, what, about 45 minutes from Little Rock, where we are now? So Cabot is the main city there, just so people kind of have a reference. Yeah. Was he in prison, or was or what was he doing in the months leading up to the, the trial? He
1: was released. He was charged, picked up fairly quickly the same day. I believe that that was a Friday, so he spent—I believe he spent the weekend in jail— And then um, at his hearing on Monday, he was released uh, directly after that on a bond. I think that was a $15,000 bond, which the judge and prosecution and everyone seemed to make statements that this is a pretty common bond for that type of charge. I did a little bit of looking, not enough data to really say that I can say that that
0: is, but uh, it didn't seem too rare. Sure. In the leading up to the trial, did it have as much sort of attention, you know, going, uh, I guess it was June to March is what, six, seven months? Like were, were people still paying as much attention to it? Did it kind of die down for a while? Like what was going on? It definitely seemed like it died down. You know, we would publish something and everybody would jump on
1: board, but nobody was It wasn't a a large amount of media. There was definitely at least one hearing in there that no media other than us showed up to. We were still trying to get documents and writing stories, but as far as the name always being out there, it definitely died down. And I would say pretty quickly after
0: the charges were announced. Right, and what information were you getting at all from either side, the prosecution or the defense? Leading up to the trial, I mean, I understand your reporting says the prosecution basically didn't say much at all until after yeah. the verdict was handed down. But did you know what? What information did the media have access to? Early on, we
1: were well. Early on, the body camera footage never came, and we did write some stories and we talked to a lot of different people at the national level, looking at the body camera um, issue. And in a lot of states and a lot of places, have been releasing that early as soon as all the witnesses are interviewed. Um, But this is a conversation that can go either way, and people can argue on either side. But the idea that once the witnesses have been interviewed, then their opinion and memory of the situation can't be changed by the body camera footage. And so you can release it as early as that, and that there's importance and the public being trusting of this process. Uh, And that's one of the big things is just keeping the public trusting of the justice process when you have an officer involved shooting. Um, so immediately we did not, the, the body camera footage was not released, which we also knew did not have the full shooting, that it started after the shooting, that he had forgotten to. Uh, I think what they've argued or what they've said is that he, it's a three-step process, and he did two of the steps but didn't hit the, the third step and didn't realize it wasn't recording. Looked down after the shooting, realized it wasn't recording, and started it. But regardless, we didn't know, and it was used. I mean, it was used in the court. There were several details in that that I think were
0: used by both sides. So there was information that people could gather by watching that video still, even after the fact. And there was another officer on the scene who did have his body came on the whole time correct or no, no he? he
1: showed up um a few minutes after the, the minutes fact after the fact um but he had been called and so he was very quickly sure um, he came in just you know I, I don't know how long it was but it was very it was maybe a couple minutes at most that so he showed up on the scene
0: and is it my understanding that you are still waiting to get that footage or access, the media hasn't had access to that yet? No, we have not. We have voyeid for it. And
1: from last I heard from the state police, they're waiting on a document from the court before they can
0: release it. So they're, they're waiting on some paperwork. Is that fairly common or not common to have to wait so long even after a trial has happened? I don't know in this case. Sure. You know, it's
1: to have it fully finished I haven't had to I haven't had to just immediately go ask for something. Usually I had enough information or it was a little bit after the fact that I was digging into something. So I can't say for sure. But we're yeah, we're just waiting <laughs> at this point.
0: So leading up to the trial, there were some sealed documents. The jury selection was anonymous. There was a change of venue. Uh, there was a lot of police presence outside of the building itself. What to you is sort of unusual about, or what happened that you know, struck you as sort of interesting, maybe not unusual, about the days approaching the trial and sort of what happened right before and, and during?
1: Yeah, I think there was always a talk of that releasing information would Tainted a jury, that you wouldn't have a fair trial. And we hear that a lot in the media, that if we if we release this information, uh, that there won't be a fair trial. And that's why they can withhold information from us. I think we first started, we had the body camera footage. The prosecutor did not talk to us at all during the case. He did talk very extensively after the trial was over. We did have conversations with the defense attorney and write some stuff. I think the first time in court was about the second or third hearing when the judge was upset about the defense attorney talking with the media. Um, there was no official order. There was no gag order. Nothing was ever filed. But but she had said, "Don't don't talk with the newspaper before you file your motions. It was pretty soon after that that it seemed like nothing was getting uploaded to Court Connect, which is the state's document. Um, system for for the court. you could see things were going in, but there was no attachment there, no attachment file that you could actually look at. And it was a couple weeks of calling, sending an email, asking for these documents before I finally went up in person and asked for them. And I was I, I couldn't leave the lobby. I had to have somebody come out of the clerk's office and talk to me and then um, wait for an hour until someone finally told me that the judge was going to seal the case and that the judge had been pulled out of her docket to verbally seal the case, which I requested an official document, a stamped document on that, and I had to wait another hour until it was finally filed and we had that, which sealed the case. Now, what was rare about that is that usually a defense attorney or prosecution ask for that. They're the one who files a motion, and the judge doesn't do that on their own, where in this case the judge did it on their own, without either side asking for that to happen. After that happened, everyone treated the case like it was a gag order, which it wasn't. It was a ceiling of the case, and nobody even wanted to talk about the case. So there's a lot of stuff that was happening that we really had no idea of, and that and that was odd. They also made the, the jury anonymous through, due to fear of threats, which there were some threats to the, the sheriff uh, early on, I believe he worked with the FBI. I think they've traced that they've traced that down to being somebody out of town. He always said it was probably out of town, had nothing to do with the family. It was these outside groups. But yeah, there was this big concern of threats, of violence, of and then also a tainted a tainted jury due to um, media exposure. And I think what we found when we finally got into the case was interesting when the jury was brought forward and the questioning happened. The prosecution asked very specific questions about the media and asked how they heard about the case. Everyone who went through there, which was the first batch, they, we, know, we only went through the first batch, it was about 50. They had two batches ready. And I'm not sure if we got all the way through them, but about 50 or so people. And they had all but one had heard about the case. Only one of them had heard about it from the newspaper. And only a few had heard about it by, from the media at all. Then the question that followed from the prosecution was, where did you hear about it? And that was the nail salon. It was work. It was family member. It was your neighbor. It was social media. None of it was official media sources. So this whole concern that we, our coverage of it was going to taint a jury actually didn't seem to be that realistic, that everyone heard about it in their own ways, and most of that was through social media and wasn't talking about a lot of the real facts, but just the the basic conversation. I personally did not see Yankee and say there wasn't anything, but within the courtroom, outside the courtroom, everything was fairly civil. And it was not held in court, it was held at the Cabot Readiness Center, which is the uh, National Guard armory. And it was supposed to be held there because of Worry of disruption from chanting and things like that that we did see in an earlier case, but it was it was held there at this at this facility that's not a courtroom, which meant that everybody was there together: the Davis family and the the Hunter Britton family. That you're using the bathrooms together, you're going through checkpoints together, um, you're using the same door in and out of the courtroom together, and there wasn't any real issues that I w- that I saw. And if there was, it would be very highly likely the judge would have made a note of it. But it was highly policed. It was state police, CABA police, and when the verdict came out, there's at least ten officers that lined the walls of the room, which felt it, you could feel the presence. And and they start, you know, at ready position. And that honestly it was it was slightly worrisome to see this many officers prepared and ready to go in this room that you're in the middle of. But when the verdict came out, there was not a sound in the room from either side. It was completely silent. And family did get up, and they walked out really quickly, but not in disruptive ways. In the parking lot, there was definitely some emotions that were felt. And people pulled out their signs, which were not allowed at some point. Um, but that was about it, and for brief moments, um, playing some music, things along those lines. But there wasn't a any seemingly real threat
0: of violence or um, direction towards anyone. Right, and just to remind people, the verdict was negligent homicide. And the family had been hoping for a felony-type conviction not necessarily even for jail time, but just so Michael Davis could not own a gun again or work in law enforcement again. It, um, that was really their biggest hope from my understanding.
1: Yeah, they wanted him to never be able to own a gun again. or uh, The felony conviction was the only way to do that, or to be a law enforcement officer, which we've seen previously happen in the state before. We've seen a law enforcement officer charged with felony manslaughter who pled down prior to going to a court case and uh, to negligent homicide and was hired as a police chief later in in the state. So it's not really out of the question that that couldn't happen and that Michael Davis couldn't still be a police officer. But the prosecutor says from the start that the family wasn't out to cause any damage or pain to Michael Davis. Um, You know, they weren't they weren't this family that was just out there really wanting the worst thing to happen to Michael Davis for Hunter Ridden death. And slowly throughout time as they saw and they heard more about Michael Davis and especially after seeing um, some of his emotions on the stand and through the body camera footage, they said they did not want prison time. They really just wanted him to never own a gun. Um, the misdemeanor, the thing is the jury never knew that, that was never said to the jury. It was never said to the defense, even. And the prosecutors, there is some, you know, reasoning there. But so oddly, the jury didn't give the felony, gave the misdemeanor, and then gave the um, the max amount of prison time with that. Which is one year. One year. And about, what, a $1,000 fine? A $1,000 fine, which a lot of people online, and I don't know, online conversations, you know, you... You only see one side sometimes. You don't always see all the sides. But there's been a lot of people saying, "Well, only one year," and it really was, the family didn't even want. They didn't even care about the one year or any prison time. So it was it was purely the not being not being a police officer. Right.
0: We'll be right back with more Capital and Scott. Hi, this is Laura Ferrar. The stories we dive into on Capitol and Scott are just a fraction of the reporting the Democrat Gazette brings to readers every day. If you'd like to support our commitment to bringing you the latest in Arkansas news, sports and entertainment, consider subscribing to the Democrat Gazette. With your subscription, you'll get a digital edition of the newspaper every morning, along with the latest news and updates delivered to you on an iPad provided at no extra cost. For just $34 a month, you'll get the same award-winning journalism you've come to expect from the Democrat Gazette, plus exclusive photo galleries, videos, articles, and digital extras like this podcast, all in the palm of your hand. To sign up today, call 1-800-482-1121 or visit us online at arkansasonlinecom forward subscribe. Welcome back to Capital and Scott. There was only a week for this trial. Like this, the trial was held in this special facility where the, what the, the National Guard or something. Anyway, there was only it was only booked for five days, so it was kind of a rushed deal. I don't really know how long trials like this would normally last. Was there anything during those five days in terms of testimony that stands out to you? And also, what was Michael Davis's sort of demeanor like during the week?
1: Uh, he was very quiet and a lot of times his back was to us, so we can't really say exactly how his face may have looked in those moments. And he did I mean the the rare thing is he actually did take the stand and was emotional on the stand. Uh, I think one thing that probably hasn't been reported is that he started crying at some point about his dog that the Defence Attorney Robert Newcomb was, was asking him just about his career and one of that at some point he was a canine handler and that dog had recently died in two weeks, so when Robert Newcomb got to that point. Michael Davis started crying on the stand, and we didn't. Nobody really knew why he all of a sudden started crying. At the talking about his canine, it wasn't until after the fact that Robert Newcomb had told me that his dog had recently passed away. But yeah, he's he. I think that everyone saw that. I think that I don't. I never heard, and I can't speak
0: for everybody, but I never heard anyone question his grief on the situation. What was the strategy for the, the prosecution? And, and I will get to this in a minute, because you did speak to Special Prosecutor Jeff Phillips, mm-hmm. and, who made some really interesting comments to you. But what was their, their goal with what their approach was during the week?
1: Um, Jeff Phillips' approach during the week? Mm-hmm. The key focus seemed to be around the witnesses and, and questioning if Michael Davis gave verbal commands or not prior to shooting. And they even, in their closing statements, they didn't say that they believe that Michael Davis lied, but that possibly his memory of a traumatic situation was broken and hard to remember correctly. So maybe he did remember making those verbal commands, but they were trying to prove that they had
0: enough reason to believe that he did not make those verbal commands. So I guess what I'm hearing from you, and if I'm misunderstanding this, is that Hunter Britton's family, after seeing the portion of the body camera footage that was available from Michael Davis's body camera, was it almost a sense of, okay, they could, I mean, obviously can't speak for them, but a sense of, okay, they could have seen how this could have been an accident or a mistake. Like, because you said that even jail time kind of maybe became even less of an issue do you feel like it became something changed during the week?
1: I can't speak for, like, for the actual shooting. I, I think they still think that everything about that is the reason why the he shouldn't own a gun again. And, and, I, and I've heard them specifically say things along those lines. But they saw a human on the other side while in trial. So you can judge an action without judging the human sometimes and I think that's
0: what they are saying right so just briefly you spoke to Jeff uh, the special prosecutor Jeff Phillips who was appointed for this case. When you interviewed him he said that in other cases with police shootings that there's always been some indication or some you know police violence there's always been some indication that the person who is on the other hand of po- a police officer, you know, sh- shooting or whatnot. There's always some indication that the person had a weapon, a big knife, a gun or bat coming at the officer. But in this instance, it was, oh, my God, he meeting Hunter Britton didn't have anything. And he didn't even show his hands. What was striking to you about the conversation you had after the trial with Phillips? And why do you think he wanted to talk to you?
1: Um, I think Phillips was standing by the fact that he was trying to preserve the the court case and his facts prior to trial, and that he felt like he, in order to get justice, needed to remain quiet. But that since the trial was over, he had no problem having the conversation, and so I think that's that's why he was he was willing to talk about it, and he had a lot of thoughts on it. <laughs> you know that it was it was interesting to see, especially. Uh, after going through this period of time of never having a conversation with him, I mean, and I've I've chased him through parking lots before, trying to get words out of him and and maybe get like a couple of, but barely nothing in the beginning. Our newspaper emailed him every single day, asking for I believe the body camera footage and charges, and if charges were coming, not not asking for the charges, but asking if there was an update in the case, and he'd made a decision yet. I also, I think that maybe he realized how much we tried (laughs) to talk to him as well. You know, he realized that we put a lot of effort in, and so he gave it to us, but um, he just didn't do it before the trial.
0: So Davis is one of five law enforcement officers who have been charged in an on-duty shooting since 2005. Within that sort of that recent history timeframe, he's the first one to be convicted um, by a jury. So what what do you think this means? Uh, what, what happens next, kind of what are your takeaways?
1: I mean, I think that it's the first time you have a jury conviction, it is moving the needle. It is saying that maybe a jury is willing to look at these cases with a little bit more detail or open mind. I think a lot of people said and I mean Phillips said it it was a hard it's a hard case. There's a lot of people out there who just really do not want to think that a police officer could ever do anything wrong. And there is a jury member who was on the jury who during the questioning who said that he thought there was a higher threshold for them because it was a part of their job. So you had multiple people who were on the jury. who had law enforcement connections with family. It just, it, it is really, from what I heard from multiple different attorneys and people in the field, it's it's a hard case. You know, I don't know if you can expect it every time. And obviously the facts will be completely different in each situation. So it's hard to say what somebody may feel
0: watching different cases. Sure, and and I think Phillips also told you it's very difficult to prove that someone was reckless. Mm-hmm. And that could have led to maybe more of a felony conviction versus the other one, uh, which was negligent.
1: Yeah, yeah. He said it's, it's one of two of the hardest in the state. The definitions are very difficult to prove to a jury, which Phillips did. An interesting job and there was a lot of talk about it afterwards of when Davis was on the stand he asked him if he had not given verbal commands if that would have been reckless and and Davis said yeah if he didn't give verbal commands it would have been reckless and you know Phillips ended the the questioning with that and uh, to let that to let that sink in and I, you know I think that was a reminder to the jury that reckless was reminder of them about that word and what that meant prior to them ever getting their instructions to go into the jury room. Because a lot of times the jury doesn't fully understand that they're going to be looking at this definition in front of them and they have to make all these facts fit into that box. I don't think they know that before, like throughout the entire, you know,
0: the trial until they get into that room and they start arguing about whatever those details are. Do we know anything right now about the appeal process or anything coming up for Davis in his defense. At this point, I mean, he was, they did file
1: an appeal. It wasn't an appeal actually dealing with something regarding the definition of negligent homicide from what Newcomb had said. And um, he was released on bond because of that. So he's he's also, he's not in jail at this point. And, the, and that sentence would be served in jail, not prison. But it could take a year or two. Before we see any real movement in that appeal process, from,
0: and that's what the judge said actually. All right, well, Teresa, thank you so much. Yeah. And thanks for your hard work on this. It sounds like a lot. Thank you for paying attention. That was Arkansas Democrat Gazette reporter Teresa Moss. Thanks for listening to Capitol and Scott. See you next time.